Welcome to the Science of Sex, a podcast about the ins and outs of the latest research about everyone's favorite topic. Here's Dr. Jana, an NYU professor of human sexuality, and Joe, a guy who's a fan of sex. Dr. Jana, how are you? You, you look mm. like you, you actually slept, which is kind of cool. I have slept, yes. This is, this is one of the, the good days when I managed <laughs> to get... I think maybe seven hours of sleep. That's awesome. Yeah. So jelly. Uh, so on this very energetic <laughs> episode of the Science X Podcast, who will we be talking to today? And I'm also really excited because we have a guest in the studio, okay. which is not that common of an occurrence. And our guest today is Dr. Eric Scrimshaw, who's coming to us from Columbia University. All the way from Uptown. Uptown All the way boy. from Uptown. All right, cool. What are we going to talk to him about? Oh, we're going to talk about by guys who are in the closet the bye guys on the down low in New York City and why they're on the down low. And it's funny, I just mentioned this is episode 49. We have not covered a, a lot of bisexuality no, in the science not, of sex. Not much. A little bit. When we talked to Dr. Rich Savin Williams, my oh, mentor, yeah. last season, we talked about kind of more the mostly straight mm-hmm. and some, some bisexuality. But I don't, yeah, we haven't talked specifically about bi guys who are actively having sex and relationships with men and women. Excellent. So before we get to that, I got to ask you a question, Dr. Jana. Okay. I know two things about you. Mm-hmm. Well, I know a lot about you, but that's it. You only know two things about me after I, a year and a half. I all right, I knew. I know. Uh, all right, of all the things I know about mm-hmm. you, I know you love two things. Okay, one is obviously sex. <laughs> obviously, that was an easy one. And two is travel. You love to travel more than the more than the average bird. You get around. Uh-huh. Actually, on both accounts. On both on accounts, yeah. Travel. Yeah, I like to get around, but yes. <laughs> I, I, I found this survey about millennials, and you are a millennial, that say some millennials- The, the oldest, I'm the oldest millennial. Yeah, you established on, that. You're on the mm-hmm. old end of it, but some millennials think travel is more important than sex. Mm. They surveyed 1,500 millennials, age 18 to 35, and 57% say they would give up sex- for travel. So, Dr. Johnny, I will keep you in the millennial <laughs> umbrella, someone who enjoys sex and travels. Mm-hmm. Would you give up? Is travel more important to you than sex? Well, I mean, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> what language is that, Dr. Johnny? <laughs> I know I'm it's a tough to... question. <laughs> well, it's a very tough question. It's also not a very clear question. I'm trying to wrap my head around that. What exactly does it mean? Like, you either get to travel mm-hmm. and not ever have sex or you only get to have sex and not travel at all like how exactly what what is being traded off here to what extent and how all right let's 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 not do a tra- mm-hmm. let's not do a trade because the trade may be very difficult for you what if we said important well, well what's more what's important what's more important is so say if you had a chance to have sex with a hot sexy bi guy or travel to morocco <laughs> And you can and you cannot have sex with the bi guy in Morocco because I know you're going to ask that as a follow up. <laughs> right? Can, so, you will have. Can z- I have sex with him on the way to the airport? No, no. You will have no. and you will have zero sex in Morocco. You are just going to go sightseeing, <laughs> sightseeing. And I know that doesn't sound like a vacation. <laughs> does, does not confuse. Does not confuse. All right. So talk to me. So both are very very important to me. I would probably go on on that trip right now because I feel like I have been getting laid enough. Okay. Now, if you had asked me right after I came back from Morocco, which followed not only that one week in Morocco, but two weeks prior to that week in Morocco, I was away for two and a half months and I traveled to eight different countries and whatnot. I would have been like, I I couldn't care less about yet another trip to Montreal okay. or whatever, or even Morocco. I, okay. I'm happy to stay in and have amazing, mind-blowing sex for a week. So to me, that's what would make the decision. So asking you mm-hmm. now, since you, you, you've prefaced mm-hmm. it by saying you've, do, you've been having a lot of sex lately, you haven't traveled in two months. We got Steve sitting there. He's shredded. He's been. He just did a few. Uh, did a few crunches. He's waiting for you. I don't think a few crunches is gonna cut it. Really. <laughs> he's already. I need more than a few. Crunches. He's already ripped. So he's just doing it as oh, a warm I up see, for I you. <laughs> You're going on that plane and leaving Steve behind. Mm-hmm. All right. Good. I am. We've but solve that. No. But as I was saying, that's not like a given. It it depends for me. Right Both now. are very important. That's okay. for right now. Now. I'm not sure how they asked the question in the survey, but 57% saying they would give up sex for travel. Mm-hmm. I think that's consistent with the data that we've been getting recently that says that millennials, as much as we think they're sex crazed and mm-hmm. having sex left and right with uh, I don't know how many different partners and using all these apps and whatnot, that despite that stereotype, they are having less sex with fewer people yeah. <laughs> than the previous generation and valuing other 
things maybe more. Yeah. And so I think this this is consistent to some extent with that. It kind of runs it, and we're, we're, we're getting close to the holiday season, and they're saying that a lot of millennials don't even buy gifts anymore. They're all about finding experiences, so they rather, you know, go, they hop on. Sex is an experience. Yeah, you know what I mean. No, I don't. Sex is an experience that totally should fall under that. I know, but I'm saying an experience as in like going to the Grand Canyon or going scuba diving or something like that. Something that you would arrange on a Groupon. You can't you can't uh, set up the sex on the Groupon, whereas you can uh, via, you know, you could with a couple of clicks, you're uh, on a plane somewhere, like Morocco. I mean, we could have Groupons for going to see a sex worker or going to a, I don't know, a sex doll robot brothel, yeah. except that... I don't think they have that yet. These, these, yeah, we don't have it yet. I've got, I'm, I'm on the Groupon now. Let me see if I'm going to type in in the search engine. <laughs> sex. Sex robot. Well, let me type in. Just sex. Just type, type in sex. What comes up on Groupon? Uh, let's see. Groupon is not a sponsor, by the way. No, they're not. But you know what that does come up? The first thing that yeah. comes up? Sex toys. There you go. Which, For real? Yes. <laughs> which leads us to the sponsor of today's show, which Lalo.com. Oh my God, that's awesome. I'm no Did joke. Look, have look, it's right there. It, sex toys right true. there. Is it a Lalo sex toy, maybe? It is not Lalo, but you can go to Lalo.com and get all your vibrating sex toy needs that they have there, right? And I know, Dr. Johnny, you shop there. You've mentioned mm-hmm. over the last couple of weeks a couple of your favorites. Yes, yes, I do have a few favorites. Uh, it's my favorite number three, right? We, I said that I had four. Yes. Yeah, so and did, we covered two. We covered two, okay. It was the Lily and the Ina Wave. Okay. And so my third favorite toy is... And no order. Remember we did mention mm-hmm. last week that there's no order. It's all just there's top no order, four. Yes. Yeah. Well, it depends on what you needed for, yes. basically, right? So it depends four. on the mood. Mm-hmm. And and this one is when I have a willing prostate owner to play with. So a guy? A guy, okay. usually, mm-hmm. although not all prostate owners are men. Right. There are some prostate owners who identify as, as women. Sure. But So when I have a prostate owner, it's really fun who is open to having his prostate played with and, and stimulated. Okay. It's really fun to do that for me. It's really fun to do that. And you can do that certainly with fingers or you can use a dildo to, to do some pegging. Sure, cucumber. But sure. Cucumbers, yes. I have not used a cucumber yet, actually. Oh, okay. Banana? But I'm glad that you have. <laughs> no, I'm just coming up with things that might oh, be able to I go say. down there. Uh, but one great way to stimulate the prostate is with something that vibrates. Right. And there and Lalo has a has a toy called Loki. Uh, Loki Wave and Loki. There are two kind of versions of it. One that has only the internal portion that goes, you know, inside through the anus, inside and stimulates the prostate. And then uh, Loki that's Loki and then Loki Wave has an additional motor that vibrates, goes to the uh, perineum, the area between the balls and and the anus, which okay. also has lots of nerve endings and it can feel pretty good. I I can't, I'm not sure. I think I like the Loki better, the one without the external motor, because with the external motor, sometimes depends on on the ball sack. It can kind of get a little bit in the way. It can get uh, sort of twisted around. But anyway, the Loki, uh, it has a nice handle that you can hold or the guy himself can hold, hmm. yeah, and then kind of stimulate uh, his prostate while you're doing other things, while you're playing in some other ways, whether like I could be go- going down on him or I could be sitting on him or I could have some other stimulation of the penis. You're speaking hypothetically. You don't know anything about this stuff, right? Right, right. of course, <laughs> of course. That's, that's definitely totally why this true. is my favorite. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and so I find that super hot and, and I love finding guys who are into prostate stimulation play of some sort. And it's funny that it's called the Loki, which is the Norse god of mischief, so... Oh, that is so appropriate. Yeah, yes. It's a good name for it. Mm-hmm. So check out the Loki. If there are any Nordic gods oh, out there, go. please, so you right. know where to find yeah, them. Yeah, yeah. All right. So go Especially to- <laughs> if you like your asses. Right. If you have a with. prostate owner, <laughs> sure. Uh, so go to Lalo.com. Check out Ujana's third favorite toy, the Loki, which is L O K I. It's not third va- favorite toy. That sounds like it's, it's know, ordered, ranked. and it's not ordered. No. Yes. One of my four favorite toys. And there's plenty of other toys. If you use our discount, code, which is science, you get 20% off on your entire order. And you know, uh, speaking of uh, butt play there, Loki, uh, <laughs> uh, our guest today has a study to do with guys who enjoy the playing of the buttocks. <laughs> that is true. Smooth, right? Yeah, Smooth. that was a good transition, Joe. <laughs> I, like, I like that. Yes, we're going to talk about bisexual men, and not all of them, though. I know 
people immediately think they must like anal sex. Not all of them do. Okay. I think, um, yeah, that's often a misconception. There are many uh, bi or, or, or gay men who are not that fond of the butt. butt. Okay. Yes, they're more fond of the penis and oral and you know mutual masturbation and other things that you can do, but not not the uh, not the anal play. But anyway, yes. I think a fair percentage of the participants in the study that we're about to mm-hmm. talk about do enjoy butt play of some sort with uh, men and or women. And these participants are part of a study that brought together about 200 men who are behaviorally bisexual, which means they were having long-term kind of partners, uh, female partners, but also male partners, and they were having sex with both, and they were in the closet towards their girlfriends and wives. So none of the girlfriends and wives knew that they were uh, bisexual, and the study was intended to figure out why are these people in the closet, especially given that this is New York City. This was a New York City sample, Mm. recent. You know, you would think there's not a lot of homophobia left to prevent people from coming out and whatnot, yet we do see this big population that is on the down low. And so this uh, study that was recently published in the Archives of Sexual Behavior looks into why are behaviorally bisexual men in the closet? Interesting. Oh, that's mm-hmm. good. That's something we've never really talked about here on the show. Yeah. So, so who is this guy we're going to talk to, though? <laughs> so our guest is Dr. Eric Scrimshaw, and he's a social and health psychologist and associate professor of sociomedical sciences at Columbia University at the Medical Center, where he serves as co-lead of the Sexuality, Sexual, and Reproductive Health Certificate Program. His research over the past 20 years has been mostly in the area of LGBT health, with a particular emphasis on HIV risk behaviors of populations of men who have sex with men, as well as the unique psychological and sexual health needs of bisexual men, porn viewers, male sex workers, and LGB adolescents. His research has been supported by multiple grants from the National Institute of Health and has resulted in the publication of over 60 journal articles addressing LGB health and well-being. Dr. Eric Scrimshaw, welcome to the Science of Sex podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So, Eric, you've done a lot of your research has been on bisexual men, mm-hmm. right? Yes. Why Why the focus on them? It really started, to be perfectly honest, with an episode of The Oprah Show. Oh. In the sh- Cars one? The one you gave all the cars away? Well, y- no, okay. but you are bisexual <laughs> and you are bisexual now. Where she was interviewing bisexual men on the down low. Mm. And we were very interested in that. And at the time, in particular, there was this kind of controversy of whether bisexual men were the bisexual bridge um, Mm. in which heterosexual women were getting HIV infections. And when the CDC would interview them about why, they wouldn't be able to explain it. They were like, well, I have these male partners, but I have no idea. And so there was some concern that it was through bisexual men acquired it through their male partners and transmitting it to their female partners. And not telling the female partners. Exactly. So this Mm. was kind of the genesis for this study. But of course, my interests are much broader than just that. So we had a whole bunch of that. Plus, I think, you know, early on in the field and in my career, we lumped gay and bisexual and even lesbian and transgender individuals all together into a single group. And I think we've all come to understand that that's really lumping apples, oranges, and kumquats together (laughs) and coming up with something that's maybe not really representative of any of the groups. And so I think what we've tried to do in my lab at Columbia is really focus on specific subgroups of the LGBT community so that we can really understand what is going on for that particular group. It is about time, right, Dr. Chime? Every time we have these studies, we always say, it's gay, straight, and there's there might have been some bisexuals in that study. They always like, there's always that caveat in there. We're not sure if they're bisexual. So it's great to actually have a study about bisexuals here. Absolutely. Oh, many. True blue, right? Absolutely. Many studies, not just one, many studies. Yeah, yeah. that's awesome. And very often there's not that many 
bisexuals in some of these samples, especially mm-hmm. when it comes to men. And so it ends mm-hmm. up being, you know, the 80% gay guys and, and the, the 10, 20% exactly. bi guys. Exactly. And I think if you're not really focused on finding them, and if you're just casting a wide net mm-hmm. and expecting people to come in, you're going to miss out on bisexual men because they're not hanging out in the same spaces, um, the same websites or the same, you know, venues that that gay men are are hanging out in and so you really do lose out on their inclusion in your sample. Interesting. Talk- so there's like bisexual websites? Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. talk to us a little more about where are they uh, if they're not in the yeah, gay Yeah, where's spaces. Waldo? Where's the, <laughs> exactly. where are the bi's? Well, <laughs> it, for our study, we found the, we looked all over the place. We cast a really broad net in terms of going to bars and clubs and LGBT centers and all sorts of places thinking that we could find them, but we also knew that we were going to use a lot of online resources. But what really worked was from Craigslist and the hmm. Craigslist personal section, which of course is now no longer existence. in existence. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if we could do this study quite as well as we did before, because what the men actually tell us when, when in how they meet people is they love Craigslist, in part because... As men who are trying to conceal, who are not really open about their behavior, they could post an an online advertisement and then take it down when they were done. And there was no record of it. It, They didn't have to maintain a forever profile like Mm. you might on an app Mm. or another website. Plus, they also love that there's you have other excuses for why you might be on Craigslist. So if Craigslist shows up in your browser history, mm-hmm. oh, well, I was just looking for a job. Yeah, or or a couch. Ouch. A couch. I was looking, exactly. I was looking for used Ikea furniture. And that w- they loved that. Mm. Now, of course, you're talking about bisexual men who might not be out. And this study in particular was specifically about finding men who are not out, who are in the closet. Absolutely. How, and so I think, well, I have, I have two questions there. How about, are, are the... Right, bi- careful, Dr. John. She does this where she'll ask two questions at the same time and they're completely different. They're, so, well, they take, are. Take, okay. So you, maybe you just one, one at a time. One. Yeah. <laughs> well, one is about, are we more likely to see, to find the bisexual men who are out uh, about their bisexuality, are they more likely to be in the gay spaces? So are these sort of non-gay spaces like like Craigslist uh, personals or maybe some, some some other venues, are they more likely to have the on-the-down-low bi guys? We see, although this particular study was focused on men who had not told their female partners at all, when we were screening people from Craigslist and everything for eligibility to the study, we do get a lot of more openly bisexual mm. men. Yeah, you initially started with something like 600 people exactly. and, and only 200 end up in the study. Right? Exactly. So I think even openly bisexual men do appreciate um, the kind of this Craigslist personals or at least appreciate the privacy aspect of some of the some of these venues as well even if they're open to you know friends and some Mm. people it doesn't necessarily mean they want their parents to know or co-workers to know or things like that sure i'm buying a couch what do you mean (laughs) exactly that's what i'm doing on craigslist (laughs) so the other question that led me to was the difference between defining bisexuality as an identity versus as a behavior. Let's talk Mm -hmm. a little bit about that. Very often when we talk about sexual orientation, we talk about, well, what's your identity? You know, what do I identify as? Are you, do you identify as straight? Do you identify as gay? Do you identify as bi? And Mm -hmm. we kind of expect that everything else will kind of fit neatly under that identity. So if you identify as gay, that means you're only having sex with you know, same-sex partners and you're only dating same-sex partners and you are part of a gay community and your desires are all about same-sex people and all that. Uh, but that doesn't always work out that way, right? No, and <laughs> especially for this population, it it doesn't at all. So we have um, in our study out of the 
203 men, you know, about two thirds identified as bisexual, but actually one third identify as heterosexual or straight, but still have sex with both men and women on a fairly regular basis. Um, so, and that makes sense if you've got a wife or a partner, you know, or a female partner you're going to kind of identify maybe with that relationship. It's like a default, right? You're defaulting that because, oh, I'm in a long-term relationship with a woman, so that must mean I'm kind of straight. Exactly. So we, mm. we often have guys in the study who talk about themselves as mostly straight mostly or straight. mostly mm-hmm. heterosexual. Yeah. Dr. Jana knows <laughs> um, that population very well. Um, so absolutely. And then we also have the difference between how they think of themselves in terms of their identity doesn't necessarily correspond to what they're doing. So they are fully accepting of the fact that they're having sex with men and they want to continue and may or may not feel shame or guilt at all about that. So, uh, Doc, as a straight guy, you know, for years growing up, the the hot factor was a bi woman. Like to, to to any straight guy, that was like the sexiest thing. But there was even growing up as a Gen Xer is someone who said they were bi. I'm like, oh, that guy's probably gay. So why is there that double standard there? That you from maybe speaking to these guys, why is there a double standard where bi guys are afraid to say that they're bi, whereas bi women are you know you know wave that flag? Absolutely. So we see that both. So there is a double standard, but what I'll preface it with is in the gay community, actually, by we've done some research that actually bi men are kind of this hot, fetishized, straight oh, okay. acting. Right, because um, they're more straight acting and there's something about masculinity exactly. right, that is very attractive to many gay men and the bi guys are supposed to are be. The, are the hot commodity mm-hmm. in okay. some ways. But I also think society has real different double standards in terms of bisexuality um, with women is more accepted because of our acceptance of kind of more fluid gender roles with women than we and we hold much stricter gender roles to men. Um, so because of that, I think there is a greater stigma of male bisexuality than there is for female bisexuality. And we certainly hear that from the guys we talk to mm-hmm. as well. And I think there's also that lack of under or, or belief that male bisexuality exists, the single drop mm-hmm. kind of, of bisexual, <laughs> of homosexuality, that if you have any amount of same-sex attraction or, or behavior as a man, that means you're gay. You're not straight. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, you're not. Yeah. You, you can't possibly be bi. That means, yeah. Mm-hmm. Even if the vast majority of your experiences are with women, one experience <laughs> can make you gay. Yeah. Uh, but for women, that's not the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, and indeed, you know, as I mentioned before, many of our guys, even though they do have regular sex with with men still identify as straight. Mm-hmm. So yeah. they they disprove that hypothesis <laughs> on, a, on a daily basis right. for us. Now, before we kind of get more into what are the reasons for not disclosing, you're, you're, mm-hmm. you're talking about these, these men. I mean, this particular study was all about men who are behaviorally bisexual, who haven't disclosed, who haven't mm-hmm. told uh, other people, especially not their female partners. Mm-hmm. And when we, we're talking about disclosure, you know, you've made the argument that we really shouldn't be lumping gay people with with bi people when studying disclosure because there are big differences in rates. Absolutely. That bi men are much more likely to be sort of in the closet than gay men. T- t- talk to us a little bit about that. How how big is this difference? And oh, it's, is it, does it still play out in a place like New York City? Yeah. And this, this is a New York City sample that you have. And we all think, come on, New York City is so liberal. It's totally fine to be whatever the fuck you want to be. <laughs> mm-hmm. So we were really concerned. Would we be able to find these guys? <laughs> Would they even come forward? And to be perfectly honest, it was so easy. And they were <laughs> so happy to have somebody to talk to. We had something like 60% of the men in our study would tell us in the interviews and in our measures that they had never talked with this or told anyone wow. in their entire lives. Um, so their parents didn't know, their friends didn't know, their wives and girlfriends didn't know. Um, so really the only people that knew they were bisexual were their male partners. Mm-hmm. And uh, now you. And me. Yeah. <laughs> so this study was therapeutic almost. In many, in many yeah. ways. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. 
yeah, I mean, to have someone to finally talk about these and things. And someone's legit. It's not like you're yeah. some guy who's hanging out at a bar. <laughs> no. <laughs> you, no. Come, you have some credentials. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, but now these people are, are the most closeted there are. Right. right? If, you, if you just generally take the bisexual broader group of bi people, bi men in particular, mm-hmm. what are the rates of disclosure? How, how do so, they differ between gay so men and bi men? It's a real astronomical difference. It is. Um, so... When we're looking at bisexual men, we're really seeing, you know, the vast majority are not mm. are not open at all. And really? that's that's mm. appears over and wow. over and over again in different studies, including some some nice um, probability based work in terms of you know representative mm-hmm. samples. So the majority are not out. Exactly. So if we think and, it, and, and, and among gay men, the majority are out, the majority are out. Mm-hmm. It really, really changes the dynamic. And it's really a good thought experiment about this is so technically when we when we do these representative surveys, we the population of bisexual men and women is actually larger than the population of gay and lesbian men and women. Um, but yet, if you defined by behavior or identity, defined by behavior, behavior, right? So that's uh, if you dabble, exactly. Okay. So <laughs> maybe you, maybe you, you know, messed around a few times in college, but up in a threesome and just, you know, there was this dick that just yeah, was got, in your face and, and your I, mouth was open. I do something. And, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, it's funny that you said that, Dr. John, is that behavior, and what was the other word? And identity. identity. That's one thing we've never really talked about. Usually when we talk about gay straight, it's usually they are what they are. But the fact that it, they're almost, there is like a duality there. Absolutely. So in sexual orientation research, we, we kind of think of three different components. There's your identity. How do you think of yourself? We have your behavior. What do you actually do? And so there's some gay identified and bi identified individuals who don't act on it at all mm. for whatever reason. Um, and then we have your attractions. And so who are you erotically attracted to? Who do you fantasize about? And those those three things don't necessarily all correspond to each other. So sometimes you have a gay identified person who only has sex with men and actually does and is only attracted to men. But actually, especially in the bisexual population, we see a lot of more diversity in terms of those three components mm-hmm. with some people acting on the behavior, some people engaging in you know same sex and other sex behavior, but not necessarily identifying as bi. Um, even the nature of their attractions is a little bit different. So when we talk to the guys about why they have sex with men, they talk about having these profound emotional connections with their female partners, but they have erotic and or just sexual needs mm. that are easier to fulfill mm. with some Amen. guy. Mm. So even the the type of relationship may or may not be always the same, mm. even if there is, you know, the same behavior. Yeah, I think for a lot of people, it's really interesting to have these people who identify as usually as straight but then have very bisexual behaviors. Mm-hmm. And there's a big question of like, what is driving you to have sex with these, with, uh, with this other, you know, the same sex that you are mm-hmm. not? Are you just lying to yourself? Are, is that identity that you have as a heterosexual valid? Like, are you even allowed to identify as heterosexual if you're having sex with, with same sex partners? And, and how do you even find a way to reconcile that mm. in your own mind. Right. And so I think, you know, for our men, when we talk with them, and I always defer back to what they tell us, mm. rather than me trying to say I somehow understand <laughs> them better than they understand themselves, um, they really they really do strongly feel a you know romantic connection or um, a sexual erotic connection with their female partners it's just they they have other other fantasies other identities other attractions as well yeah and i think the the emotional component is really is a really important one that if you're having long-term emotional connections and romantic relationships with women only then 
it's easy to base or easier or that's stronger to base your identity on that because you're having both this emotional connection mm. and the sexual connection with these people. Whereas if you only have the sexual component with men, then it's kind of, to some extent, it makes or, mm -hmm. or it allows you to discount that as a basis mm -hmm. for your identity. Right. And that's that's not to say that all of our men necessarily right. had no romantic connections with their male partners. Some really, really did um, and felt unfortunate that they couldn't express themselves mm -hmm. or be more open with a kind of male partner. Um, others resisted having any kind of emotional connection, even though they kind of felt that that was potentially there. They resisted it with the understanding that that put them, their discovery of their behavior at risk if they really um, saw them on a more regular right. basis or went out socially for a drink or something like that. Which makes sense. It's much easier to conceal sex. If it's, yeah. if it's a one-off, if right. it's a one-time mm -hmm. encounter. And how old were these guys? In the, the, the 203? 203. Yeah. Um, our, our range was 18 to, I believe, about 68. Okay. Um, mm -hmm. But most of them were, were, the average was about 30, okay. 35. And it was a pretty diverse sample. You somehow got a bunch of uh, white, black, Latino, Asian, you even have a Native American yes, in the two, sample. Two, two Native Americans. <laughs> awesome. So our goal, our goal, you know, part of that is a function of being a, a New York City sample. Sure. Um, so we have the resources here to be able to do that. The other thing is we used a, a technique called quota sampling in which we sought specifically to get equal proportions or equal numbers of black, Latino, and non-Hispanic white men. And then we tried to get as many Asian and Native American men as we could find. <laughs> he did the best he could. Would you? <laughs> exactly. Which is amazing because many times these, these studies are either only white people or only black and Latino, especially when we're talking about people who are in the closet. Uh, there right. are higher rates of in-the-closetness. <laughs> exactly. So we, ha we saw that as a real limitation of the existing studies. And that was one of our justifications um, for writing this grant and for doing this study. And there is this kind of understanding that the Latino community, in part because of the Catholic Church mm -hmm. and the African-American community, have these um, historically more homophobic attitudes. And so... There has been a lot of focus on that. So what we sought to do is kind of expand that and say, well, but how does it compare to white men or Asian men? And so what did you find? Why are these men in 2000? When did you do the interviews? So the interviews were 2013, 2000. Yeah. Okay. Why are these men living in New York City in one of the most liberal <laughs> places in the universe, probably, right, mm -hmm. in 2013? Uh, why are they so deeply in the closet? And as we said, these are men who are like very, very in the closet, <laughs> in the closet. They haven't disclosed. You said 60 percent of them had not disclosed to anybody, anybody ever except their male partners. And uh, well, they, they figured were, out the men partner. probably. Well, they kind of they, they yeah. had to. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Mm -hmm. um, but so they were specifically targeted men who had never t told a female partner. Exactly. Right? And then they just turned out that they hadn't really told anybody. anybody. <laughs> and so uh, the conversation was right about why. What is mm -hmm. the reason for this? So what did you find? Why are they so, so deeply in the closet? There are a whole host of reasons, but it all boils down to, of course, homophobia. <laughs> so the men, they believe that if they had, if they were to come out. Were to come out, their female partners would. I'm trying to think of a of a of a professional way of saying it, but would flip out. Would would have yeah. these really profound. I don't think you use that word in the paper. Flip out. <laughs> flip out. <laughs> um, I don't. But at the same time, I think that's mm -hmm. that's really what they're getting at mm -hmm. is that there would be a you know they would literally. Um, 
start screaming and throwing things and throw them out of the house. So their male con- their main concern was the female partner, partner. Not, not the community, not family. Well, that comes too. Okay, okay. So the main, the number one, the primary mm-hmm. reason was this emotional reaction. Okay. The other was also in terms of the homophobic reactions they thought they would get both from their female partners, but also from family and friends mm-hmm. and others. In particular, a number number of them talked about concern that either the female partner or others would, once they found out, would then tell everyone yeah. in their sure. community yeah. that they were gay um, as opposed to bisexual. Right. Um, again, getting back, gay, yeah. getting back to that one drop. Um, mm-hmm. it, you know, if there's one blowjob, you must therefore <laughs> be gay. Um, so that's um, was a lot of it. Right. So the emotional reactions, which would then supposedly lead to losing that relationship. Exactly. Right? So the loss, the loss of the relationship, you know, was really profound. The men kind of felt like they could always find another male hookup. Mm. It's much harder and a lot more investment sure. to create uh, an ongoing relationship with a female partner. And they really um, didn't want to lose that. Well, it's like you said too. The, they had a romantic connection with the female. Some partners. of them were, some, many of them were married and okay. had kids. Wow! And they were under the impression that they couldn't possibly find a wife or a girlfriend who would be accepting of their bisexuality. Absolutely. So they really, they really didn't think that that was even possible. That they just saw, you know, that no woman would ever consider having. Mm-hmm a bisexual man as a partner, much less one who was actively engaging in, in sex with men um, as part of, you know, concurrent with that relationship. And this is across all demographics, right? Yes, this was across all of our, all of the, the ethnicities of the mm-hmm. men. Yes, absolutely. It is funny. I, I look like the whitest guy around, but I grew up in a Latin community. My family's Cuban and Spanish, but... Uh, it's always funny how the worst thing you could possibly be accused of is being gay. And so that's one of the other reasons that we found that they aren't more open about their bisexuality is really this fear that everyone is going to assume that they're gay. Um, not even that they're going to assume that they're bisexual because that's um, a level of sophistication yeah, right. about sexuality that the average person doesn't have, but that they would just, you know, if if he has sex with men, he can't be bisexual. He just he has to be gay, and mm-hmm. he's just mm-hmm. deceiving himself and his, you know, wife or girlfriend and family and family yeah, yeah. and everything. Yes. To what extent is this correlated with education? Because it feels like. If you do have some level of, you know, as you were saying, sophistication and education mm-hmm. about n- knowledge about how sexuality works, you would know mm-hmm. that, yes, bisexuality does exist. And we know that positive attitudes toward or, or accepting attitudes toward homosexuality, bisexuality are correlated with, uh, with higher education and mm-hmm. higher socioeconomic class. So mm-hmm. to what extent do you think this is a class and education issue? I, th- I think the men themselves really un- you know have educated themselves in terms of that issue, but they don't give that same benefit of the doubt to their female partners and their family and friends who they you know they would talk about you know that you know they overhear these comments you know that you know they don't you know the people around me don't realize that I'm bisexual but they make these homophobic comments all the time so I know mm. how they're going to react mm. you know if I tell them right. because why would why would they treat me any better than they do you know, a person on the street. But do you think this, I mean, are these people mostly coming from more of a working class kind of background and and therefore their communities, environments, friends, families are? Not necessarily. Um, So I didn't really see it so much in education. What I really saw and what really emerged that our guys talked about was really the cultural and religious background Mm -hmm. that they come from. So a number of our Latino men would talk about 
the historically homophobic, you know, upbringing, um, yeah. upbringing, yeah. the traditional upbringing, the importance of family and children and of the Catholic Church and how that would lead them to expect, you know, yeah. um, and how this was a, a real problem. The African-American men would talk about the same thing. And that had been found prior to our study. Mm. But what we found that I thought was really interesting, because we included white men and Asian men, we found the same thing. Mm. But with white and Asian men in particular. So if I come from a traditional Jewish communities, say in Borough Park, Brooklyn, they felt they had the same, you know, kind of fundamentalist or conservative religious yeah. mm -hmm. community. If they were in, you know, a very um, traditional Italian neighborhood in Brooklyn, right. um, they felt the same way that, you know, their friends and family would never accept them because of these traditional and then we saw the same thing in Indian Muslim you know mm. other you know other traditional Asian cultures as well and these by guys they're assuming the partner like they're not even giving the partner the benefit of the doubt that they may be accepting they just yeah. automatically are assuming that there's no way they're accepting absolutely yeah, I mean there's this uh, quote from from one of your participants saying Come on. I mean, what girl's going to accept her man giving another dude head or a man is fucking doing ass? Come on. <laughs> like, there's no way. Right. There's no way any woman would accept that. Absolutely. And, and so that's and that's really, I think, sad in a way. But it's also it's it's both sad for the men themselves that they don't feel comfortable doing reaching out and being open. It's also sad, I think, for our society mm. that that says a lot about the expectations that these men have for you know how open their entire social network might be about them being bi or mm -hmm. or something that deviates just a little bit from their cultural expectations. If they're really hot, you can totally give them my number. All right, John. <laughs> I have a thing for bi guys. I, I know you do. Uh, so, Doc, so this is... That's my ideal scenario. We've talked about this <laughs> on the right, show. Not, I don't know. We're not talking about <laughs> no, your dating here. Hold no, on. No, <laughs> we're not. I just want to put it out there again. If somebody has missed it, I want to date two bi men. And then maybe have babies or, with them, right? I, I mean, if everything goes really, really yeah. well. You know, chances of that are ex exceptionally low. Yeah. But, you know, I want to date two bi men. Well, it's curious that you uh, you say that. Or mostly bi. Or mo mostly straight. Bi-ish. Yeah, bi-ish, bi mostly straight. Yeah. <laughs> so have you checked in with any of these guys five years later saying like, hey, by the way, did you talk to your partner? No. So one of, the, one of the conditions for this study was really, really strict confidentiality. Okay. So what we assured the men was once we, we needed their, their name and contact information to kind of coordinate for them to come in and talk to us. But what we told them we would do is we would immediately delete from our records their mm. name and contact information as soon as their participation in the study was done. Mm. That same day, we would remove their wow. their information from our records. Mm -hmm. So we we don't maintain any of that. Yeah. And I mean, it's really hard for somebody living in, I don't know, maybe more mainstream New York City culture, and for me particular, in a very sex-positive kind of community bubble, professional community that is very uh, very liberal in terms of these things, it, it's almost impossible for me to understand, like, what do you mean you're going to get bullied ostracized, or ostracized yeah. for being gay or bi? It, it, like, that never happens anymore, right? But obviously it does. And especially when it comes to, but even within this more kind of mainstream liberal um New York, if you will, and and just more general U.S. community, there there is research showing that even though friends and family would accept bisexual men or women, mm -hmm. a lot of women would not date a bisexual man. So even women who are themselves quite liberal, if you gave them a homophobia scale, for mm -hmm. example, they wouldn't score very high. They would score very low and they're all for gay rights and mm -hmm. marriage and this and that. Mm -hmm. But if you ask them, would you actually date a bi guy? They would say no. Absolutely. And Absolutely. So there's a, and that's exactly what our men are talking about too, is, you know, we would go through with them, you know, okay, 
you know, your female partner, how do you think she would react? What do you think she would say? And exclusively everyone really thought, for the most part, thought that this was going to be a really negative reaction, partly because of the bisexuality and partly because he had deceived her, had right. not right. told her all this time, and was have, having sex with men and she did while she didn't know. Mm. So there was some kind of, you know, HIV risk. I was just gonna ask that because Dr. Jana mentioned the homophobia thing, but what if there's that stigma of the HIV AIDS exactly. hangover, right? Exactly. So a number of the men talked about not wanting to to tell their female partners because she's going to automatically assume that she's been exposed. Even though he was safe or practice exactly. uh, safe these, these, and all that. And that's one of the, actually one of our other findings is the men are overwhelmingly safe mm. Um, mm. with their male partners to the degree that they primarily only practice oral sex to the extent that if they have anal sex, they'll only be the top, the top mm. and always use a condom with this very profound fear that heaven forbid they bring something home. Wow. So the the whole question around bisexuality and then monogamy or non-monogamy, they're very intricately related to mm-hmm. some extent because the one issue is not being accepting of someone who's bi because you have a th- you have negative attitudes so, toward any level of same sex sexuality. So it's more mm-hmm. out of these homophobic attitudes or, or uh, feelings. But then the other concern when it comes to the partners is that if you have attractions to both genders, you will want to have sex or relationships of some sort with at least one member of each of those genders, that you're never going to be quite satisfied with just one gender, mm-hmm. access to one gender, and therefore that means you're invariably going to go and, and cheat or, or have sex with other people. Mm-hmm. And we we know from research that that is both true and not true, I think, that there are many bisexuals who say, I I think Lisa Diamond had a great quote in one of her, uh, one of, from one of her participants or in one of her books where she says, I can drive a blue car or a red car, but I only have a one car garage. <laughs> like, I don't care if I drive a red car or a blue car, mm-hmm. but I only drive one car at a time. Absolutely. Right? But then there's also a higher interest in non monogamy among bisexual men and women. Absolutely. Is that right? So. So I think, you know, in our sample in particular, all of these men were selected because they're having both sex with a woman in kind of an ongoing steady relationship and having sex with men within that same time period. A few of them talked about trying to keep that to some sort of serial monogamy so mm. that they would have a girlfriend and when that when they were between girlfriends they would have boyfriends mm-hmm. um but for the most part these men were selected because they were having um sex with both in particular because of our our interest in HIV transmission mm. but in in terms of bisexuality and bisexual mm. men in general i think that's that's far less likely so you know we do have um a large number of bisexual men who are interested in either a female partner or a male partner, but will kind of have one at a time. We'll have this kind of serial monogamy. Um, And so it doesn't necessarily, you know, so there is this kind of stereotype that bisexuals are inherently unfaithful. Mm. But I think that's, I think that's, you know, that the bisexual community is just as diverse as the heterosexual community in many ways in terms of being open to serial monogamy or to um, to multiple partners. Yeah, I don't think we have like super good data from That's a true. large representative sample of any kind. But I remember a couple of smaller studies with non-representative samples mm-hmm. kind of asking bisexuals to what extent they had interest in non-monogamy and having you know multiple partners regardless of whether it's the same sex or different sexes and i remember seeing elevated rates of interest in non-monogamy compared to heterosexuals even though i think it wasn't the majority i think something like i don't know maybe 20 or 30 percent of 
of bi folks in, in that study would say that they would be interested in non-monogamy compared to, say, something like 5 or 10% of heterosexuals. Right. So there's some increased um, levels, but not not the vast majority of them. Absolutely. And so I think that we have to be real careful about, you know, generalizing from some of those studies sure. until we have, you know, good data because that can really be used to to stereotype and and pathologize the bisexual community to the extent that non-monogamy is is pathologized. But that's the thing. We, we want to depathologize <laughs> yeah. non-monogamy. Exactly. <laughs> because so, it shouldn't be. Right. But and, and I think I mean, what do you think with the increase of kind of acceptance of these open relationships and non-monogamous relationships? Do you see this changing more and more by men being able to come out and or or find girlfriends and wives who are going to be accepting and who are going to be kind of on board with their bisexuality? I'm not sure. And Mm -hmm. I'm not convinced. I think to the extent that a bisexual man and a bisexual woman can find each other and mm-hmm. and therefore, you know, kind of be on a level of mutual understanding, that's, you know, an ideal, you know, in terms of both being open. But you could to totally that. have a mostly straight woman who gets to have sex with other men and mm-hmm. as long as they're both kind of getting what they want right. in it, right? It doesn't have to be exactly equal that yeah. both are getting whatever, the exact same number of partners from each of the genders oh, yeah. or whatever, no. yeah. I think to, to kind of shift a little bit away from homophobia and, and uh, mm-hmm. fear of losing relationships and all that, I think very often the thinking around why bi people might be less likely to come out or disclose to other people has been around this n- notion or 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 thinking that they don't actually know for sure what they are that there's that the reason they're not saying hi everybody I'm bi is because they're not sure they're maybe still in the process of identity development maybe mm-hmm. they're going from straight to gay maybe they are confused maybe mm-hmm. and so obviously you're not going to go and tell everybody who you are if you don't know who you are Absolutely. did you see any evidence of that in your sample and we we looked for that we we fully expected at least some of the men to be talking about that and we did not find hmm. that at all hmm. these guys really did know that they really were attracted to women and really are attracted to men or at least enjoyed sex with men. And there was not a whole lot of confusion on their part. Um, Even among those who were heterosexually identified, they thought of themselves as heterosexual. They really primarily identified publicly as well as personally as heterosexual, but that didn't mean that they didn't know that they certainly wanted um, sex with men and wanted to continue to have sex with men and therefore really wanted to kind of maintain their down low um, kind of life. Mm. Um, They really wanted to maintain this secret so that they could continue to have that uninterrupted. Mm. Of these 200 guys, were were there, was there a percentage of them that were like, I'm bisexual, I'm just not coming out? Or or Mm -hmm. were there some who were just like, I'm straight, but uh, I like to dabble. I mean, were there some that were proud bisexuals, just obviously privately? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So that's a that's about two thirds of our sample. Fifty seven percent were yeah. bisexually identified, thirty five percent heterosexual, and then eight percent said something other. Right. Like so those were so the the eight percent is you know mostly heterosexual. Um, heteroflexible was one of my <laughs> was one of my favorites. Um, so like or or didn't label. or didn't like labels. Right. Um, so that's um, that that was the, the extra eight percent. Now to move away from this particular uh, study and kind of more broadly into the research on disclosure mm-hmm. and how that's related to some other important things. I think mm-hmm. we've we've talked about coming out in our society as something that's good, that's healthy, that's correlated mm-hmm. to better mental health outcomes, physical health outcomes, sexual health outcomes, and so on. And that's why we've spent so much time doing research on it and kind of looking into it. Mm-hmm. What uh, su- Summarize all of this. I think at this point there's so many studies on Absolutely. this for gay people, for bi people. Uh, is, is this true? What's the verdict on that uh, from all the studies that we have? Is coming out a good thing? in general, for some people? And is there a difference for bi versus gay 
men. A lot of my career really has been on this and starting with all of my work um, early on, even in graduate school, about you know gay and lesbian and bisexual adolescents and how it was really important to kind of uh, have them be self-accepting and disclose and that that had a whole host of really good um, benefits in terms of their mental health, in terms of their substance use, in mm. terms of internalized homophobia and all sorts of other health outcomes that we look for. I think the picture gets a lot more complicated with bisexual men and particularly with this sample in part because disclosure does have kind of a double-edged sword to it. Yes, it allows you to, um, if you're, you come out, it allows people to provide you with support. Mm -hmm. It reduces your ability, your need to constantly conceal and maintain that. Like dual identity. Exactly, yeah. that dual identity. Um, but at the same time, it also exposes you to a lot of ridicule. So one of the things we see among bisexuals is they experience far less in terms of actual experiences of discrimination, rejection, and you know, kind of violence that the gay and lesbian community experience, in part because bisexuals often are able to pass. And so they're not you know, readily identifiable on the street, but at the same time, so, by, so that's a benefit for bisexuals, but at the same time, what we see is a lot of our men are very, very, have very, very high levels of concern about being discovered. And so that too work, you know, has an interplay. So I think there's a lot of nuance there that hasn't been really fully unpacked in some of the earlier studies. So for example, we we tend to focus on disclosure, how many people have you told, or outness, how many how out are you? And that's one component, but with the bisexual men, we actually found that doesn't really correlate well with a lot of their mental health outcomes. What we really find is it is the underlying feelings of the need to conceal or the the concern about discovery. So this anxiety about being found out is really far more important. So mm. when we've all when we've been doing research looking at the coming out process and about disclosure, disclosure does tend to be beneficial, but in part because it's a proxy for that self-acceptance that has already taken place prior to disclosure. Mm -hmm. and, and then so, getting this and getting support. Exactly. Right? So what we what we uh, what we're seeing in this sample in these guys is you know to the is to the extent that they are less concerned about being discovered that they're more accepting of themselves and their and their sexual identity that's more important than the actual act of telling other people mm. so the as we've talked about most of our guys don't tell but a lot but they vary a lot in terms of how concerned they are about others knowing. So a number of them will talk about, well, I haven't told anybody, but if people were to find out, I would be able to find another girlfriend eventually. Mm -hmm. And I think my parents would be upset, but they'd get over it eventually. Right. And I might lose a couple of straight guy friends, but most <laughs> of them would be cool. Mm -hmm. wow. So as long as you have that feeling about what would happen. Like a safety net. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. You, you're okay kind of exactly. thing. Exactly. So I think from our research and from working with this population, and I think it would generalize to, our, to other, you know, to gay men and, and gay, particularly gay adolescents, that it's it's not so much the coming out process in that 
actual need for disclosure. It's really the self-acceptance process that takes place before the disclosure right, occurs. Right, right. The self-acceptance and also the ability to have in, to, to be in a supportive community, to not be discriminated for exactly. what you are. And I I mean, I think it's a it's really interesting how that plays out differently for gay and bi men in particular, because as you were saying, if you're gay, you're coming out, you've accepted yourself, great, and then you're coming out in a in, in a gay community and you're finding even if your parents reject you, you have your gay community and they mm -hmm. will accept you. Or you're going to find friends. If you're lucky enough to have that community. Right, right. Yeah. But places mm -hmm. like, like New York mm -hmm. or you know, generally liberal places, you wouldn't have a hard time finding community. Right. But for bi guys, they can accept themselves, but most of them live in these generally heterosexual environments. Absolutely. With the girlfriends and their heterosexual families and all that. They're not part of a gay community. And they don't necessarily want to be part of a gay community. And so if you've accepted yourself, but then you come out and you get rejected by everyone who matters to you, mm -hmm. that's more of a problem than... And there's, and there's not really as often a kind of real substantial connected bisexual community, community. Yeah. Um, really they they feel like they're very isolated mm -hmm. they don't know a whole lot of other other bisexual individuals it's almost like you said at the beginning that their manliness is sort of like a hindrance and a benefit because it <laughs> hinders them from coming out but it also helps them that they can obviously just live their life and no one would suspect them of being bisexual absolutely indeed a number of them actually tell us they bring along wives and girlfriends strategically to some family events or work <laughs> events to or to certain friends yeah. to make sure that they know that he is straight, straight. Yeah, and it's not like it's a beard situation <laughs> they they know that they're with this person so it's not a full-on lie it's almost just like it's a little bit of a cover-up half lie yeah, half -life. yeah 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 now are they disclosing the these guys who, who are so in the closet with their female partners and families and all that how honest are they being with their male partners about their bisexuality about the fact that they have wives and girlfriends and mm -hmm. all that so they do tell us a little bit of both some some say that they're that they don't you know they really don't talk with these guys at all it's all about the sex, sex. Mm. and so there's not really a whole lot of conversation there um, They're not having a cup of coffee or anything. Like that. No, <laughs> no, co no coffee, no drinks, no dinner, no movies. But they do. But others do actually talk about it, and they actually use it as an advertising tool. Say, mm -hmm. all in their Craigslist profile or other places like that, they they actually say, "I'm bi and I'm married, and you know, I'm DL, and I need you to be discreet." And they actually believe or find and I understand why that they, that this is actually a a you know recruitment tool that entices that, <laughs> that entices people to wow. to to contact them either that it's other bisexual men like themselves who want, who, who want that yeah. discretion or who um, or for gay men who find that to be an erotic fantasy right the more masculine you know aspect of Absolutely. Uh, being bi. Do we have numbers on bisexual men in terms of population, like going back 20 years? Are there more bisexual men? Do we know, do we have d that data? There is. There, so um, there are a few um, researchers. I think um, Dr. Brooke Wells comes, comes to mind who has looked at some of this in large national surveys and actually found that more people both identify as bi or engage in or report bisexual behavior more recently okay. than than in past decades. Cool. Yeah, and I think as as it becomes more acceptable to be gay, it also becomes more acceptable to be kind of half there, halfway there in <laughs> right. in, in a way, and so more people are open to experimenting and trying things out and um yeah. Right. But or at least admitting, admitting it on survey, it. Right. surveys. Right. right, there's that. <laughs> and as we are getting ready to wrap up, any take-home messages from this research that people can apply to their own lives? Yeah, I think it's really critical that we not expect, force, coerce, bisexual men to necessarily be out and proud. I think we mm. each need to come to that 
in our own time. And there are there are real negative consequences that that can potentially come from that. Um, and so I think as much as the bisexual community um, really would benefit from greater openness and greater visibility, um, at the same time, I think a lot of our research really um, suggests that they really need to focus on themselves and and their own self acceptance um, rather than you know being out and proud necessarily. Yeah, I, I think if, if people have the luxury of coming out as being proud bisexual, then by all means, go ahead and do it. We need that. We need you all. Mm-hmm. But uh, so no outing people non-consensually. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I would also add, not have these assumptions about what bi people might want, what kinds of relationships that might want. Mm-hmm. First of all, trusting that there is such a thing as bisexuality in, in men. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, and that just because he's bi doesn't mean that he wants to have sex with men and women at the same time. So uh, if, if you're a woman in particular who might be in a relationship with one, you know, that's very possible that he might be faithful to you and perfectly happy in that mm-hmm. relationship. And even the relationship can continue even if he's not. That, mm. that if her needs are being met and his needs are being met, that, you know, yes, the relationship might be different than it was before, but it's also a more honest and open relationship. And I think that can only be good for both. Great. Thank you so much. This was awesome. My pleasure. <laughs> Dr. Jana, that about wraps up episode 49 of The Science of Sex. Guess what? Up next, episode 50. 50. Wow, we're turning 50. I just did that math really fast. I didn't get any props for it. Amazing. <laughs> I'm, I'm impressed by your math skill, really. <laughs> it's, it's pretty good. Quite, quite Even though you insult me about my math skills uh, on a regular basis, but thank you for, for, the, for, the false, for the false love. But that's pretty cool. Episode 50? Episode 50. That's an achievement. <laughs> Who do we have on episode 50 of The Science of Sex? We have Dr. Seth Pardo from San Francisco who's going to talk to us about his research on trans folks. Oh, okay. Yeah, another thing that we haven't really talked about much. No, yeah, I mean we've done a, had a couple conversations, but we haven't really. Had yeah, we any haven't studies. had a guest. Yeah, that's we haven't cool. had a guest talk about trans uh, research, so I'm super excited about that. So that is episode 50. Thank you once again for joining us. If you have any questions, we're going to do a sex question plus very soon. If mm-hmm. you have any sex questions for Dr. Jana, make sure you head to the website scienceofsexpodcast.com or email us info at scienceofsexpodcast.com. Or go to any of our social media sites, uh, Science Sex Pod on Twitter, Science Sex on uh, Facebook, uh, but any which way you want to get Instagram. a hold of Instagram, mm-hmm. any which way you you, uh, you like to communicate with people, we're open and, and uh, willing and <laughs> able to t- answer your questions. And if you like what you hear, please consider rating and reviewing us on iTunes or any other, other platforms where you listen to the podcast. And if you would like to support all this great work that we do, or I think it's great, oh, I don't yeah. know, you might disagree, but <laughs> if you think our work, work is great. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's great. <laughs> I would like to support it. A great way to do that is by going to patreon.com slash drjana and become a monthly subscriber for as low as a dollar. Yeah. And if that was too much for you to all take in, all of this is on our website. You got the Patreon link on there. You have our social links. It's all at scienceofsexpodcast.com. Dr. Jana, till next time. Bye. Bye. To connect with Dr. Jana and Joe, go to the scienceofsexpodcast.com or follow us on Twitter at Science of Sex Pod and follow us on Facebook at the Science of Sex Podcast. Subscribe now to listen to the weekly podcast.